Welcome back to Movement Matters, a forced perspective of New Testament restoration. This is Steve Carr. Thanks for coming in here on Lesson 2, Lesson 2, The Force of Faithfulness. I'm just glad that you stuck with it. I will admit that Lesson 1, The Force of Framing, is a little longer, but... You know, I feel like that's necessary to set up where I go with the rest of this movement. One of the things that is interesting about the restoration movement is that uh, there's a a spirit of uh, kindly critique. And maybe I'm being generous by saying the word kindly. But uh, when you even go about to talk about something as innocuous as the history of our movement, there are always people who want to disagree. And I, you know that's one of the benefits of being a non-denominational movement. There's no official version or history of it. So lesson one was long. The subsequent lessons here on the podcast will not be as long. Still, you know what? You could use the resources that will help you to determine how the movement matters. And they are available to you and to maybe your study group for free. That is going to be at houseofcar.com slash movement. That's houseofcar, C-A-R-R dot com slash movement. So thanks for joining us again. Lesson two, the force of faithfulness. Part one, my least favorite story in the Bible. Yes, there are parts of the word of God with which I have issues. And I know some of you might think already, Steve's heretical. It's it's heretical to criticize the Bible, but that's where I'm going to start in this lesson. Now, maybe to try to prove that this is indeed uh, biblical to be able to have parts of God's word with which you struggle. You know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might remember the story from Genesis 32. In that story, you have Jacob, who literally, and this is the actual use of literally, not the new Gen Z use of literally. He literally wrestled God. But in that, the Jewish rabbis took this as a broader metaphor. They said that we have permission to respectfully grapple with the word of God. So let's be honest. There's sometimes that uh, biblical texts irk us. They don't fully make sense to us. And that's actually where I want to start to you here in the force of faithfulness. Actually, it's, it's specifically with one of Jesus's parables from Matthew chapter 21, the parable of the two sons. So I'm not going to use a specific translation here. I figured I would offer you a retelling in Steve's revised version uh, as we get started here. It's a story that goes like this. There was a wealthy farmer who had two sons. And the man had some field work that needed to be completed. So he looked to his kids for assistance. And he asked his first son, he said, will you help me out? Nope, said the first son. I'm just too busy. But despite that response, the first son showed up anyway and got the work done. But the man, not knowing that his first son would actually show up and help, asked his second son if he'd take care of some of the work that needed to be completed. Sure thing, said son number two. I'll be right there. But the second son never showed up. So Jesus asked the crowd of the religious leaders that were there. He said, which of these two sons fulfilled his father's wishes? The first one, they responded. So 
before I tell you what irks me about this, let's just try to understand the purpose of the story. The, the original audience of this story were the religious leaders of the day. It's not all that complex. So uh, they likely understood what Jesus was trying to do with this parable. His goal with the story was to expose their hypocrisy. The biblical scholars, those religious leaders, were like the second son. They had a relationship with God, but it was wrapped up in study. Right? It, was a, it was wrapped up in saying, oh, we will do this. So even though uh, they were privileged to understand what the Father wanted, they didn't actually do it. They didn't apply it in their lives. So the lesson of this parable is pretty simple, that in God's kingdom, action is significant. Of course, uh, we don't earn God's favor through good deeds. You know, we, we understand through the book of James, though, right? Good deeds, however, are, they're the truest reaction to understanding the Father's wishes. Jesus here isn't suggesting that actions are the only thing that matters. The focus on his parable in Matthew 21 was to expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who were primarily the target of critique throughout his ministry. So... I wanted us to get this out of the way because I, I, I understand the meaning of this parable. It, its application here is limited, so you know it's not going overboard. But I will tell you that it bothers me. I get annoyed with this parable because of the lack of options. See, maybe you're like me. I, I like choices. I, in this story, want another choice. You see, I wanted Jesus to maybe include... A third path, right? A cool son. You could even call the son Steve if you would like, right? What, uh, the son who not only agreed to go out and work in the field, but he actually did it. I mean, is it too much to want a character who both responds positively and serves selflessly? See, I just don't understand why Jesus didn't do this. No, okay, I do understand, right? He's making a specific point. He's trying to teach the lesson to the hypocritical church leaders of the day. My third option would have ruined the point of the story. But is it too much to ask for an obedient middle child, right? Somebody who both believes in the words of the Father and then acts in submission to him? See, my perspective might, may, may be influenced by the fact that I'm a middle child myself. Um, but looking at this broader, I, it makes me think about my tribe. It makes me think about the Restoration Movement because throughout our history, the Restoration Movement lived between polarized responses to God's word. There's been constant tension for balance between these two aspects um, what Christians believe and what Christians should do. So in the introductory video uh, that you can find online uh, to this, I described that these polls are not limited to the restoration movement, right? This isn't a uh, restoration movement only issue. And in fact, I'd offer that Christians throughout history have grappled with you know these two poles. There are two theological terms that we should introduce. The first one is orthodoxy, which means right thought, and orthopraxy, which means right practice. See, Christians are constantly seeking to be right in both categories. We strive both to understand. God's word and to live it out faithfully. And in essence, this was the aim of the restoration movement, the pursuit of New Testament restoration. 
is for us to restore both the ancient faith and the ancient ways. Okay, so I talk about this in the application article that's available online, but I, 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 I want to make sure that when it comes down to us understanding what we in the restoration movement believe, it comes into three core beliefs. So again, I go into this more in depth in the application article. You can look at it there, but I, I think it's helpful for us to understand these three categories. This is what identifies uh, the restoration movement, and the first issue is biblical authority. Because the Restoration Movement is a movement of the Bible, right? Restoring New Testament Christianity. It's the call for followers of Jesus to live by the Word of God. Okay, so the Restoration Movement is about biblical authority. It's also about church autonomy. Okay, the Restoration Movement is a movement of churches. So in order for the church so scriptures to be fully restored, churches must operate and function and exist as they did in the Bible. And that was autonomous me, autonomously, which means that they were independent. Okay, so each local church had uh, responsibility over the people in the church. So biblical authority, church autonomy, and then finally, the third part is Christian unity. The restoration movement is a movement of harmony. So one of the primary goals of the early movement leaders was to seek to unify all Christians under the authority of the Bible and the authority of the local church. Okay, so biblical authority, church autonomy, Christian unity. Okay, what what this is known as, by the way, is something that's often called the restoration plea. That's like a, it was an old school saying when I learned about it because, you know, for us, when we're talking about plea, it sounds like, you know, we are pleading that we're almost begging. In this historic move, the restoration plea, in this historic view, the restoration plea was basically the essentials of belief. Like, what do we hold to? Okay, so <clears throat> that's what we talk about in the article is is the plea and that that then is our orthodoxy right the this is the the right way we believe of uh, viewing the word of god through biblical authority church autonomy christian unity okay so i go over that in the article so go ahead that's again a little bump go to houseofcar.com slash movement download the resource pack and you'll be able to have that but <clears throat> what, what i want to talk about in this lesson is orthopraxy, how we, God's people, have pursued righteousness, right? That is our, our right actions. So I've taught entire seminary courses um, that have uh, of the Restoration Movement that have lasted, you know, an entire semester, right? So there's so much we can look at right here. You know, there, there are books and resources that you can do. If you want to go into the minutia of restoration movement uh, orthopraxy, our story, our history, you can find those resources. I'm assuming if you're listening here, you, you either are just trying to learn it or you're trying to see where I'm a heretic and critique it. So either way, I'm just trying to give you in the next few minutes – a, uh, a streamlined version of events that helps you place it. Okay, that's, that's the goal of us examining orthopraxy. So part two, come and feel our flow. And I'll admit that the restoration movement in our history can be confusing to newcomers, right? But, but at the same time, if it makes you feel better, it's just as confusing for those who have belonged to our tribe their whole lives. There's over 200 years of history to examine. There's a cast of characters, most of whom are relatively unknown in the scheme of Christian history. So 
What I like to do is just create a, a flow of our history. I've divided into three different areas. You know, I have a penchant for alliteration, so I am utilize that here too. So uh, the first part was the frontier area, the frontier era, the frontier era. So this part of our history is the shortest. It spans only about half a century, but it is the centerpiece of our movement's story. And the start of the Restoration Movement coincides, coincides with American expansion after the Revolutionary War. It predominantly took place on the American frontier, which in that time was beyond uh, the Alleghenies, uh, the Appalachian Mountains, and beyond the east coast of the United States and the con- colonies. You're looking at that area, area from Ohio, Kentucky, um, Pennsylvania. These were essential places that happened uh, where the events happened, western Pennsylvania, if you will. Uh, so, yes, the uh, our movement was one that took place on the American frontier in the early 19th century. And at that time, I think it's important to understand the context of the American religious landscape uh, because it was a little peculiar after the country had gained independence. See, the theology of Calvinism was pervasive. It was popular. Over 80% of Christians in America after the Revolutionary War claimed some sort of adherence to Calvinism. And this coincided with the rejection of Anglicanism, right, the influence of the Church of England because that was the church of the people whom the Americans had defeated in conflict. So in this new country, there was now an openness to new thoughts and ideas and expressions, and you take that openness that Americans had, and then you put it in the American frontier, which was you know untamed territory as well. And that helped to mold the mindset of the start of the Restoration Movement. There was a an entrepreneurial spirit behind this vision to restore New Testament Christianity. And thus, there's no one single founder to the Restoration Movement. There are a myriad of influences, okay? And by the way, you can look at these influences that existed before the Revolutionary War. It came out of some people who were out of Methodism and Presbyterianism. But generally, when you talk to people about the Restoration Movement, it's traced back to two main roots in the frontier era. Okay, the first one, and I would suggest that this root of the Restoration Movement is noted for its action, its orthopraxy, could be associated with Barton Stone. You've, nobody called him Bart. I realized in the last episode I called him Bart. It's like, you know, we're on a first-name basis. But Barton Stone, as a young man, Stone struggled mightily with his faith. Um, After studying with some influential mentors, he found a balance in his faith of belief, right? He he had this Calvinistic, legalistic background, and he he felt as if he was in danger of hell. But then Stone embraced the grace of the gospel. He understood that he was forgiven and decided to enter professional ministry. Eventually, he accepted the call to preach at a church in central Kentucky. So it was here on the American frontier— that Stone's exploration of the Bible brought more change in his life because what he did, he, he, he found out uh, that to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be forgiven and have grace. But then he served in the church and he didn't see the church of the New Testament reflected in the church where he served. 
He excitedly read the book of Acts and then looked at his Presbyterian church and he he saw that they looked nothing alike. So Stone was in this point where he was convinced that he and the church needed to change. And while really dealing with this, there was an event that changed Stone's life. And this is what we referred to last week. It's understanding the Cane Ridge Revival. August 1801. And Cane Ridge is just outside of modern-day Lexington, Kentucky. It was just in the midst of a field. There was a religious revival. And I would say it is the most influential moment in our movement. And most historians look back and claim that this is where the movement really started. It was remarkable, remarkable gathering for that time period. As many as 20,000 worshipers converged on those fields and at that time, you know, this is not in, you know, like an established arena or anything. It was just to come in to worship. That was that was pretty phenomenal. It was a week filled with lots of preaching and lots of conversions. And I'll even add, this is, I, I love this aspect of the story. We won't go too far in this, but there was a lot of charismatic worship expressions at Cane Ridge. And it's interesting because generally the restoration movement is cold toward movings of the spirit, the uh, spirit-led practices. So even though they uh, can be seen in the very first uh, moment of our movement, they were never fully embraced by it. But still, the, the overwhelming image of Cain Ridge was one of Christian unity because the, the value of denominations and the creeds that they held, they were insignificant. It was an atmosphere where the Bible was most important. It was elevated and the simplicity of faith reigned. As much as that was a pretty moment, though, the aftermath of this event brought Stone a lot of heartache and controversy. He and some other Presbyterian clergymen who were involved in, in, there in Kentucky, they were pursuing this, this new concept of faith, but their denominational network thought it was a little too non-Presbyterian. It was emphasizing unity a little, with, with these other uh, sects of, of believers too much, and eventually it led Stone and his contemporaries to pursue independence and independent church worship. So we pause in this story with Stone to introduce the root of the Restoration Movement connected with theology and with orthodoxy, and that begins with a minister named Thomas Campbell. He immigrated to the United States from Ireland and, like Stone, became embroiled in his own controversy. He, Thomas Campbell ended up in western Pennsylvania also leading a Presbyterian church. And Thomas, at the same time, exploring this idea that American freedom awarded them, uh, started to you know teach the Bible, using it as the sole guide, disregarding Presbyterian creeds. And as the Presbytery ruling body became aware of this, they rebuked Thomas for his heretical ways. And what he started, his son Alexander would greatly expand. Uh, and there is no person who looms larger over the restoration movement than Alexander Campbell. And Campbell was a scholar. Many consider him to be the greatest thinker. He was so skilled in debate and maybe even more skilled as a writer. Uh, it's impossible for us to overstate how important Campbell was to the restoration movement. Much of who we are today has his fingerprints all over everything. So, that leads us from the frontier era to the forging together era. 
And this part of our story is even shorter than the frontier era. It probably only encompasses a couple decades. But understand that in the early to mid-19th century, both these two movements, the Stone Movement and the Movement of the Campbells, they flourished independently. They operated in just nearby regions, though. So people associated with each group would overlap each other. And this started conversations that led to a moment at a church in Lexington, Kentucky in 1832, where the two groups formally aligned with each other and became one. And the merger of the Campbell and Stone movements was a momentous representation of the restoration plea of this view and call for Christian unity. Because each root could have flourished independently of each other, but they chose to selflessly unite. And Ultimately, it showcased that unity was the biblical, the most biblical path to be taken. By the way, I will tell you that sometimes the Restoration Movement is referred to as the Stone-Campbell Movement, and what it signifies is how important those two roots were. But despite however influential these men were, neither or none of them sought that moniker for our fellowship. They, they didn't want their names to be elevated higher than the name of Jesus. In fact, in the early days of the movement, they searched the scriptures to determine what the best name for Christians would be. That's a big thing within the Christian churches is trying to determine how we call things. And there is always a preference for biblical names. And as they searched the scriptures, they saw that throughout the New Testament— followers of Jesus were known as Christians, you know. And so rather than be known as Presbyterians or Baptists or Episcopalians, they chose Christians. Now, some also chose the title of disciples because throughout the New Testament, followers of Jesus are known as disciples, but Christian became the predominant name. So as America continued to expand west, this very American expression of Christianity grew in popularity. Um, by the middle of the 19th century, there were Christian churches moving across the country. Perhaps one of my favorite uh, historical figures, President James Garfield, was an ordained elder in the Restoration Movement. What this signified is that it was going mainstream, that this was no longer a fringe group. It was a legitimate force in American Christianity. But that leads us into what I would say is the third era. You have the frontier era. You have the forging together era. And then you have the fighting with each other era. So while the Restoration Movement was driven by this ideal of Christian unity, unfortunately, it was a little too good to be true. The Restoration Movement has always endured conflict. Uh, ironically, the movement's non-denominational identity contributes to the strife. There's there's a lack of hierarchy, and because of that, there's no true authority. And at least in the New Testament, there were apostles who were able to rein in those who were wayward in their views of Christianity. But with autonomous churches, all uh, the independence lent itself to argument and division. The, there were actually two splits that took place among the Restoration Movement. The first one was in the late 1800s. The, it, we'll talk about this later. The argument was essentially over instruments in worship because the Bible didn't mention the use of instruments in worship. There were some who believed that it should be forbidden. There were others who believed that it was permissible. They argued, and again, we'll go into this in a later lesson. It was a little bit more complex than this, but ultimately at the very beginning of the 
20th century, these two groups officially split, creating the Churches of Christ non-instrumental or a cappella. It gets a little confusing because there were some who remained that were called the Churches of Christ. Uh, so this part's confusing. That's why I tend to describe them as non-instrumental or the a cappella Churches of Christ. There was another conflict later in the 20th, transform, 20th century that transformed the tribe, the restoration movement, even more. That argument was maybe even more serious. It was about the view of scripture. There were some people who adopted a more progressive liberal view of that the events of the Bible were actually fictional or mythological, that they were just uh, there for human inspiration. As this theological liberalism intra, uh, infiltrated our movement, there was a fight with more conservative churches that were left behind. Again, I'll talk about this in a later lesson as well too. But uh, that group ended up forming its very own denomination known as the Disciples of Christ. So when we're looking at this fighting with each other era, it, what started as one ends up in three different streams of the same movement. There are the conservative churches of Christ, non-instrumental a cappella on one side. On the other side, there's the progressive liberal disciples of Christ. And in the middle, there are the moderates, the Independent Christian churches, churches of Christ. That just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Uh, I will tell you this, that, that the moderate group, the independents in the middle, that's my stream. And that is the focus of perspective that I will offer here. And as I admitted in lesson one, right, this is part of framing. It is me trying to tell the story. I'm telling the story from this middle group of believers. So if you're part of the churches of Christ that are non-denominate or non non-instrumental uh, or a cappella. If you're part of the Disciples of Christ, this is no disrespect for you. This is just for me to be able to tell the story. And this is the story of those who walk the path of the middle way. To part three, meet in the middle. And even though we've talked about orthodoxy, I want us to understand um, orthopraxy as faithfulness to the restoration plea. Again, we're standing up for those three things, for biblical authority, for church autonomy, for Christian unity, and for generations, believers have sought to live out the teachings of the New Testament. In the restoration movement story, however, what I look at is just three different ways of viewing the importance of these. I, I put it on a spectrum, an orthodoxy, orthopraxy spectrum. So in that right belief, orthodoxy spectrum, to that one side, I would say there are the non-instrumental, the a cappella churches of Christ. They clung to right thought. Simply put, their split from the rest of the Restoration Movement was due to, in their view, others not taking the Bible seriously enough. They were passionate for the eternal ministry of the church, but in doing so, in their passion, they froze the scriptures in time. And I'd say at the opposite end of the spectrum are the disciples of Christ. They, they lean toward orthopraxy. Their interest in the social aspects of the gospel were intended to counteract those who took the word of God too seriously in their view. So they had zealousness for the social ministry of the church. Um, but this, in essence, marginalized uh, the strength of the Bible. So the area between the two, I think, was claimed by the moderates us in the middle of the independent Christian churches. We chose to pursue a balance that the other two streams of the restoration movement rejected. And now, it doesn't mean that our thoughts and actions have been flawless. To the contrary, I'd suggest that we've struggled to navigate the gray between those two poles. But, but, 
while the non-instrumentalists were perhaps too rigid and the disciples were perhaps far too generous, the independents sought balance between biblical authority and Christian unity. Essentially, we sought the way of the third son. But as is with many things, it's a challenge to hold the middle ground. In fact, being in the middle is often more dangerous than being fully liberal or fully conservative. It's a risky place because extremism is always the sexier sell. Yes, living in moderation can be healthier, but requires effort and moxie. There's there's a sense of freedom living at one of the poles, okay? Because you don't have to think as critically. You know precisely what you stand for. No one will question you for lack of passion. But in the middle, there's always a battle to be waged. In the middle, there tends to be even more fighting. And I would say that has been the story for my stream in the tribe, the independent Christian churches. This aspect of our existence has often been overlooked because of our successes. Just, just a couple of decades ago, the independent Christian churches were positioned in a place of power. Around the conclusion of the 20th century, a study revealed that the independent Christian churches were one of the fastest-growing denominations in the United States. Yes, I know that they weren't actually a denomination, but that's what they were declared. And we were on the pace to become perhaps the most influential sect within evangelicalism. And this was a great source of pride from those among our tribe. Many believed that our ascent was unstoppable, but in the years since, our growth has been curtailed. Our tribe's institutions are experiencing significant transition. Our colleges, our magazines, our conventions are in decline. And that's tough to say, but I mean, I think it's an observation based in reality. And since these institutions being independent, since these institutions were the glue of our regional networks, there's been a drift. And there's seemingly a cloud of uncertainty hovering over the restoration movement. And that's where I wonder. I wonder if the path of the middle child is nothing more than an intangible dream. When people feel threatened, like some of us in the middle do now, we take a, a posture a posture of protection. I think we're willing to fight. We become afraid that the ground we've lost is the result of questionable actions in individuals. You know, you'll see this, right? We assess blame. We name names. We confront theology. We become more isolated. Man, maybe Jesus knew what he was doing in Matthew chapter 21, right? Maybe even though I prefer that path of the middle child, maybe he was right, maybe. It's truly not possible. So for my tribe, for the independent Christian churches, for us moderates who are left in the middle, we're struggling to find to define what our orthopraxy is. What does it mean to be faithful in a modern world? And to this, I can only offer the following counsel. And that is, it's okay that we're not okay. See, we don't have to resort to fighting or to 
insularity. But we do need to pause and take a deep, rich look at both our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Ultimately, we, like the brothers in Jesus' parable, are asked to go work in the field. The Father needs our help. It's harvest time. There is work to be done. And at the very least, now is neither the time to sit on our hands or to make hollow promises. If we are truly to be right, it must be done while we're getting our hands dirty. We can't be right if we're not out in the fields working. And this, my friends, this is what the force of faithfulness is all about. This is at the very core of the restoration movement. This, if we are to continue to survive and thrive in the years moving forward, we must reclaim. We must look at what, has, what it has meant to look at our story and to see the eras that have come before us and to chart a trajectory for what the future will be. And if we decide to remain in the fighting with each other era, so be it. But the clock is ticking and we won't last at all. What we truly need is the revival and renaissance of a frontier era. We ought to be on the lookout for the next Cane Ridge, the next revival waiting to happen. And again, maybe I'm naive. Maybe this movement has surpassed us, but I truly believe that it's out there for us. Man, that's, that's why this movement matters, friends, and that's why we're on this study. So that is lesson two, the force of faithfulness. Again, thanks for joining me on this study, on this series. If you are trying to access the resources that accompany this podcast, it is there for you and it is free on my personal website, www.houseofcar.com slash movement. And thanks for listening in. We'll see you next time.